Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. There. And thank you, Andrew, for leading our youth so well. Uh, you can open in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. This will be a very easy passage to find. Genesis 1, verse 1. If you did bring a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, so you can reach forward and grab one, and uh, our passage is on page one today. Yes, we are beginning a new sermon series this morning. We just completed uh, a series, as many of you know, called Route 66, where we went through the entire Bible, uh, preaching one sermon per Bible book. And it took us about a year and a half, and it seemed good to us to go back to the very beginning and spend a little more time, get into a little more detail uh, on the book of Genesis in particular. So that's our plan here this morning as we start a sermon series called The Gospel According to Genesis. Thank you to Andrew Brown for designing um, this logo. You should be able to see the stars moving in the background. I don't know if you noticed that, but... That's, that's very cool, so thank you, Andrew. <clears throat> um, we are going to, as I just mentioned, give a certain amount of time and detailed attention to these first three chapters of Genesis. So uh, I don't anticipate that we'll be out of the first three chapters by the end of the year, actually. So we're going to be spending some time here. Uh, I'm not promising we're going through all 50 chapters because at the rate that we'll go through these first few chapters, it could take a long time. Um, we'll see how far we go, but we'll kind of work forward, you know, first 11 or 12 chapters. Um, but there is some good reason to explore Genesis in detail. Uh, Genesis is such an absolutely foundational book in the Bible. Um, almost all of the major doctrines that we believe as Christians find their foundation in the book of Genesis, and in particular, just these first three chapters. It's really impossible to overestimate how important and foundational these chapters are. Uh, if we get the first few chapters of Genesis wrong, we're going to get a lot else wrong as we read through the rest of the scriptures. So Genesis is absolutely foundational, but Genesis is also somewhat controversial. And we'll find out that there are a lot of different views on Genesis, particularly regarding the way Genesis relates to science and discoveries of science over the last couple of hundred years. How does Genesis relate to evolution and Darwinism? And how old is the earth? Um, how long were those creation days? These are things that people argue about and dispute. Uh, even among many Christians, there are great disagreements. Um, Augustine, back in the fourth century, said about creation days, it's impossible to conceive how long those days are. Uh, and that was in a pre-scientific age. So even back then, there was difficulty with some of these elements and questions in Genesis. Luther pointed out that the ancient rabbis had a rule, which was that nobody under the age of 30 could expound upon Genesis chapter 1. Uh, it was just regarded as too much, too overwhelming. So I'm definitely over 30, as I'm sure nobody questions and uh, I think I'm uh, at least 
moderately qualified. So we'll look to the Spirit to help us with these first few chapters. Now, I do think that this is um, maybe the best time of all to be looking at Genesis because we happen to live in a particular time. Our, our culture um, uh, carries with it certain assumptions that um, are disputing many of the things that we read in, in Genesis. There are some writers who say that we live in what is called a disenchanted world now in the 21st century, a disenchanted world. What these writers mean is that the world that we live in and the culture we live in constantly sends us this message that there is no supernatural, that there is no God, that there really isn't anything in the universe aside from what we lay our eyes on, that it's just a bunch of accidental, random mechanisms playing their way out, and that all of the wonder that we might have otherwise seen in the universe has actually been drained away by atheism and secularism. And so some writers are saying our world is disenchanted. There's no enchantment anymore in the universe. Uh, it might explain why people can be so bored when there's so much to do in our current day and age. A guy named Mike Cosper says this, in disenchantment, we no longer live in a cosmos, we live in a universe, a cold, hostile place whose existence is a big accident, where humanity is temporarily stuff that's ultimately meaningless and destined for the trash heap. Now, not everybody would put it that way, but an atheistic, secularistic worldview is basically this. That's not what we believe. That's not what the scriptures teach. We believe in a God who has, out of his creative power and energy, as a product of his grand imagination, has created the entire universe. That everything we see around us is a product of God's imagination, and it's full of color and vividness and wonder. It's a beautiful universe that we live in. It's indefinitely, it is definitely enchanted. Um, Albert Einstein, I'm sure many of you have heard of, Albert Einstein once received a letter from a schoolgirl, and the letter asked Einstein, do scientists pray? And Einstein responded by, by saying this, Everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science, or that is contemplating the universe, becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. Anybody honest looking at the universe will admit that it's a humbling thing. When you stand out in your backyard and you look up in the sky and you see the stars and the moon and the planets, aren't you just overwhelmed? Aren't you humbled? Don't you look up and think, who did this? Who could make such a beautiful creation like this? And whoever it is, man, it would be nice to know him. Wouldn't it be nice to know him? And that's what the Bible tells us about. So we are beginning at the very beginning. <laughs> <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to look at these first two verses, 1 and 2. So, if you're able to stand, please do so, and we'll read these two verses and unpack them. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Spirit of God, we call on you now to open our eyes and our ears to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, we're going to consider three things today. We're going to consider when everything was created. When did this all begin? We'll consider what. What did God use to create the world? And then we'll consider who. We'll examine a little more closely who this creator God is. So, first of all, when? When was the universe created? And the answer is here in this first phrase, in the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, heavens and the earth, is just a way of saying everything. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have a word for universe, so this is a way of describing the highest heavens down to the lowest earth, everything in between. Kind of like if you said, I've been doing this night and day. What you mean by that is I'm doing this all the time. God created the heavens and the earth. That means God has created everything in the universe. Now, when did this actual event happen? How many years ago? Well, that's a big question. There are many scientists who say that it happened something like 14 billion years ago. And uh, there are others who would say, no, it's more like 6,000 years ago. And maybe some of you have different views or hold to one of those views pretty strongly. We're not going to get into that today anyway. One thing for sure, however, is what seems to be pretty obvious, and that is that the universe did have a beginning. That's important. The universe had a starting point. There was a time when the universe didn't exist. There was nothing except for God. And then there was a universe. <laughs> the universe started at a particular point in the historical past. Now, the reason that's significant is because not everybody has believed that. Uh, the philosopher Aristotle believed that the universe was eternal, that it never had a beginning and will never have an end, presumably. Uh, the accepted view of science for many, many years, centuries, was the same. The universe is eternal. It didn't have a beginning. That's what most scientists believed. That's what they thought the evidence suggested. Until the 20th century, until just, just recently, within the last 100 years, Suddenly, the perspective of science on this question of whether the universe has had a beginning or not has completely changed. And so here's what happened. <coughs> There's a guy named Edwin Hubble. Some of you are familiar with that name. If you've heard the Hubble Telescope, the telescope was named after this man, Edwin Hubble. And uh, <coughs> he was charged with the task of trying to find out if there were more galaxies than the one that we live in. We live in the Milky way galaxy. And so Hubble, with his telescope, began looking into space to find if there were more galaxies. Well, he discovered that there actually are more than just one galaxy. And man, if you talk about a god of wonders, when you think that there are something like, I think, like millions of galaxies that God has created, I mean, it just blows the mind. It's just astounding. Here's a picture of the Andromeda galaxy came through the Hubble telescope. This is the galaxy that's closest to the Milky Way galaxy. So 
Hubble, looking through his telescope, finds that, yeah, there's lots of galaxies. There's more than we ever conceived of, but, but he found something else. This was in 1929. He also discovered that the galaxies that he saw were actually moving outward. They're traveling. <laughs> the galaxies are rushing out, like away from the Milky Way galaxy at very high rates of speed. Everywhere he looked through the telescope, he saw galaxies just moving. Now that was a startling discovery because the theory that was accepted at the time was something called a steady state universe theory, which said that no, everything is pretty much stable and the universe is contained. But Hubble found, no, the universe is actually growing, it's expanding if you just think about blowing up a balloon. And the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what's happening to the universe. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's expanding. It's growing outward. And it's so interesting to notice what the scriptures say. Here's Psalm 104. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Have you ever seen that phrase and wondered what that meant? What does it mean to stretch out the heavens? Well, it would seem to be consistent with what the astronomers tell us. The universe is expanding. Isaiah says this also, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Isaiah 42.5. So, the universe is expanding. Well, here's what the astronomers did. They began to kind of like reason backwards. They thought, well, if throughout time the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and cooler and cooler and cooler, some astronomers started reasoning backward and said, oh, well, if it's getting bigger, if we go back in time, that means the universe is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and hotter and hotter and hotter. So think of the balloon again. The balloon's blown up, then you let the air out of the balloon. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so astronomers deduced from that that there is then eventually a point where the uh, universe gets to this point where it's not expanding any further and it's at this immensely hot place and that's when the universe began. And that's what the astronomers now call the Big Bang. And so now it's commonly accepted among scientists and astronomers that no, the universe is not eternal. It actually has a starting point. What the Bible has been saying all these centuries. Here's a guy named uh, Robert Jastrow. Um, <clears throat> worked for NASA. Uh, Self-proclaimed agnostic. He says, astronomers studying the universe through their telescopes have been forced to the conclusion that the world began suddenly in a moment of creation as the product of unknown forces. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. <laughs> strange for the astronomer who is not thinking of an eternal universe, but for the theologian who's reading the Bible, it's like, yeah, that's what we have been telling you all this time. The universe has a starting point. Another astronomer, Arno Penzias, um, said this, my argument is that the best data we have as an astronomer are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five book of Moses, <laughs> including the book of Genesis, of course, the Psalms and the Bible as a whole. Just saying the, what the Bible has told us is true is exactly what the scientific and astronomical data indicate, at least with regard to this question of the start or the beginning of a universe. In the beginning, 
God created. That's where it all started. The universe has had a beginning point. It's not eternal. There's another astronomer, a guy named Alan Sandage. Alan Sandage. He was an assistant to Edwin Hubble. And Alan Sandage also began to um, examine the heavens. And he did some significant work and eventually became known as the father of modern astronomy. And as he looked at the heavens, he began to realize that this universe is so well put together that there has to be, he said, an organizing principle behind it all. There has to be an architect who put this all together. That was his conclusion, and eventually that led him to putting his faith in Jesus Christ and becoming a born-again Christian in 1983. The father of modern astronomy. In part from looking at the heavens, became a Christian. And Sandage said something very important that we all need to remember. And he said this, he goes, you know, we, we can learn a lot about creation through astronomy and the sciences. We can learn a lot about creation, but the limit of that is that it doesn't tell us anything about the creator. If you wanna know the creator, if you wanna know this person who created everything, we, we have to look elsewhere. We, we value science. We have scientists in this congregation. We learn much from science. We have no disrespect toward science. Science tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything. There's a limit to what it can tell us. It can't tell us how the universe was created. It can't tell us who created the universe. It can't tell us what this who person is like, and it can't tell us how to know him personally. Science can't do that. It was Galileo who said, science tells us how the heavens go, the Bible tells us how to go to heaven. And they're both important. But at the very least, what we see here in the scriptures is this astounding statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it is being confirmed by the findings of science that the universe had a beginning at a specific point in time. Well, let's go on. What is it that God used to create this universe? What materials did he use? You know, if I asked you to build a table, you would probably say, well, I, I need some materials. I need a saw, I need a hammer, I need some lumber, I need a level, I need some glue. You'd need stuff. You would need pre-existing stuff to create a table. I mean, imagine if I asked you to build a table and I said, but there's no materials for you to use, but I want you to build a table. You said, it's impossible. Well, let's ask that question to God. What materials did God use to create the universe? What did he have at his, at his disposal? And the answer to that is this. Nothing. God created the entire universe, the Milky Way galaxy and all these other galaxies out of nothing. The doctrine, uh, according to the uh, theologians, is called creation ex nihilo. It's just a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. God didn't use any pre-existing substances. Hebrews 11 tells us this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, the universe was made out of things that are uh, uh, not made out of things that are visible. God didn't have any pre-existing materials. Now we see here in verse 2 there's a description of uh, what is there. 
um, at the beginning, but you'll notice in verse one, it's God first creates the heavens and the earth, and then we have in verse two this description of kind of the first product of creation, the earth, which is without form and void. It's, it's unproductive, it's unfruitful, it's kind of like a barren wilderness, there's no life there. Um, darkness is over the face of the deep, there's no light yet. You know, we'll see the creation of the sun and um, a, a little later. The face of the deep, that's a description of the ocean. So we have darkness over this ocean. You have this, um, this kind of lonely place, lifeless place. It hasn't been organized, it hasn't been formed. What God is gonna do is take this and organize it through the six days of creation, which we'll be talking about in coming Sundays. But notice here very carefully that the earth that was formed without form and void, it, it didn't exist before God existed. It didn't exist alongside of God. God existed, and through him, these things came into existence. And so the only conclusion we can draw from that is that God had to create out of nothing. If he created out of something, then that something would be co-eternal with him and somehow divine and perhaps worthy of our worship. But, but no, there was nothing. I mean, let's just talk about a God of wonder. I mean, just contemplate that a little bit. God creating everything out of nothing. Now, you might be responding to this and saying, well, that just sounds ridiculous. That sounds silly. No intelligent person would say that or believe that. Well, let me show you a quote from Stephen Hawking, one of the most famous scientists of the last hundred years, who said this. Because there is a law like gravity the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So there's a brilliant scientist apparently holding to this idea that actually it's possible for something to be created from nothing. <laughs> but the problem here is what Hawking is saying is that it's a, it's a law, the, the law of gravity creates. He's saying the universe creates. I mean, that's not the way it works. Inanimate, impersonal matter does not create. It doesn't work that way. I mean, it's so interesting that Hawking would reject the Christian view and yet hold to this idea that inanimate, impersonal matter can create. Laws don't create anything. I mean, I think we all know that, but as a way of illust illustrating that, I mean, if you put $100 in the bank and then put another $100 in the bank, you'll have $200. That's what the laws of arithmetic uh, arithmetic tell us 100 plus 100 equals 200. But if you don't put any money in your bank, the laws of arithmetic aren't going to put money in there for you. The laws of arithmetic are not going to create wealth for you. Laws don't do that. Laws just describe what is happening, the way numbers work. And so Hawking here, holding out for this idea of kind of an evolution out of nothing, I guess, but... Um, rather uh, an absurd thought compared to the Christian view which says that there is an eternal, personal, almighty, creative God who did this. And he can create out of nothing. Well, you might also have this question. This often comes up uh, when we talk about creation. And we see that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so a lot of times people will say, well, who created God? Who created God? I mean, an interesting question, but honestly, kind of an absurd question. 
The reason why is because God, by his very nature, is uncreated. I mean, if you were to think of anything else that would have created God, wouldn't you agree that that thing would be God, or that person would be God? Being created means that you're not God. It'd be a little bit like saying, how do I make a square into a triangle? Well, as soon as you turn a square into a triangle, it's not a square anymore. And as soon as you talk about God being created, he's not God anymore. God is uncreated, as Psalm 90 verse 2 makes very clear. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. You've always been there, God, uncreated. Now, this might sound like a lot of philosophy and abstraction. Uh, let, let me just kind of bring it down here and apply it to the gospel. I wonder if you can think of any other occasion where there's been a creation out of nothing. Can you think of any other example, spiritually speaking, where there's been a creation out of nothing? And I would suggest to you that whenever a person is born again by the Spirit of God, Whenever a person becomes a Christian, whenever a person is converted to Jesus Christ, that is a creation out of nothing. It's God's redemptive, spirit-filled power without the use of any pre-existing substance creating a new life in you. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. God didn't look at you and think, wow, there's a really upright moral person. I can work with that. Boy, here's a person who's just so committed to his religion. I, that gives me something to work with there, God's thinking. I can take this, and he's got this started, but I'll now add Jesus to it. But what he's done already sure gets him going in a good direction, and together we'll accomplish salvation. A lot of people think of salvation that way. It's my efforts plus God's efforts. I do my best, and God helps a little bit by bringing in Jesus. That's not the gospel. If you're a born-again Christian, God has created a new life from you out of nothing. But now you're alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive in Christ. It's like a picture of creation in your heart and in your soul. So what did God use to create? Nothing. But let's lastly consider something about who this God is. Who is this God who out of nothing can create the universe? A number of things we learn here about the attributes of God, about what he is like in just these first couple of verses. First of all, we learn God is one. God is one. In the beginning, God we don't have any reference to any other gods by various names. We don't get a picture of a bunch of competing gods. We don't get a, a picture that the Bible is polytheistic in any way. Now, that might sound kind of strange to you. You might think, well, everybody knows there's one God. Well, at the time this book was written, nobody thought there was one God. Everybody thought that there were many gods. The idea of one God was unheard of. Polytheism was the common view of the day, and so a lot of people make a mistake of trying to read too much science into Genesis. Now, through this series, I'm going to be referring to science, as I have even today a little bit, because those are the questions people are asking, but I don't want us to miss the fact that Genesis was not written for that purpose. Genesis is not written to dispute Darwinism. 
It does dispute Darwinism, but it's not written to dispute Darwinism. Darwinism wasn't a thing back then. The thing that was back then was polytheism, an idea that there are many gods. And so Genesis comes in and says, no, all of you people believe in many gods. There's not many gods. There's one God, one true God who created everything. And what's very interesting here is that this word for God in verse 1 is uh, the word Elohim, which is actually a plural word, but the verb created is singular. So we have a plural word for God, but a singular verb, and what we're beginning to see in seed form is this idea that while God is one, there's a diversity in him. There's, there's others part of the Godhead. We're seeing the Trinity just starting to peek up its head just a little bit. Of course, as we look at the rest of Scripture, we learn it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons of the Trinity, but one God. So that's the argument that Moses, who I think wrote this book, that's the argument Moses is making. It's, it's an argument. That's the thing that was kind of new to me, the idea that Genesis is an argument. It is. It's Moses saying, not many gods, one God. Um, we also learn that God is eternal. So we kind of talked about that. No beginning, no end. Um, we learn that here from Genesis. Uh, we also learn that God is mighty. Certainly it takes a great amount of strength and might to create the universe, but again, if you look at some ancient views of the multitude of gods, what you'll find is that very often they're always fighting each other and struggling with each other. But the God of the Bible doesn't fight against anybody to create. Creation is easy for God. I mean, think of that. Creation does not present a problem for God. He doesn't have to struggle to create. It, it just is like breathing for him. Look at this, Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He just like exhaled. <sighs> and the universe came into being, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. These things are not hard for God. You know what that means is that whatever problem you're looking at right now in your life, whatever seems overwhelming to you right now, whatever it is that you're thinking, I don't have the strength to deal with this, God does. God can handle it. It's not a struggle for God. I know it's a struggle for you, but it's not for God. God is self-sufficient as well. He's self-sufficient. That means he, he's happy in himself. When he created, he didn't create because he needed to create. It wasn't like God was lonely and needed someone to hang out with. It wasn't like there was some deficiency in God's character, and so he had to fill it up by creating. Nope. God is just full of glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly happy for all eternity, and out of his desire to express his glory into the universe, he creates. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. And he doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. Which is what makes it all the more wonderful that he loves you anyway. He doesn't love you because he needs you, because he can't get his work done without you. He loves you just because he loves you. And that's a good way to be loved. Acts 17 the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God needs nothing. 
The last thing <clears throat> that we can conclude from all of these attributes is this, God is to be worshiped. God is to be worshiped. Nothing in creation is to be worshiped. Not your husband or wife, not your car, not your house, not the sun or the moon or the stars. Nothing deserves your worship except for this God. This God who is at the center of the universe. All things revolve around him. The world does not revolve around you, nor does it revolve around me. The world revolves around God. He doesn't exist to make you happy. You exist to make him happy. He doesn't exist to please you, although he often does. You exist to please him. He doesn't exist to glorify your name and all of your projects. You exist to glorify his name and all of his projects. God is to be worshiped. There is nobody else. This is your task in life, not to just figure out what works for you, but to find out who the one true God is and submit to him and live for him and follow him and love him and glorify him. Now you might ask, how do I do this? How does that happen? After all, you're talking about this God who has created a multitude of galaxies. Certainly he's too busy for me. How can I have relationship with this transcendent and highly exalted God? Well, Here's how. There's another place in the Bible where this phrase, in the beginning, is used, and it's in the first verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And John says, in that early verse, he says, in the beginning, clearly bringing back to mind Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. God the Father, and now a divine word with God, Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. You see the Trinity kind of coming together there. The word was God. The word was with God. <clears throat> and then John says, the word became flesh. The divine word, second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature, became a man, came to our earth, walked on this earth and obeyed the law of God. That flesh, the word became flesh, that flesh that he took to himself, he, he laid it down on the cross, offered it up as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine, and then was risen from the grave in a glorious bodily resurrection, another kind of new creation. So if you want to know the creator of the universe, there's, there's only one doorway through which that can happen, and that is to know the Word made flesh, to know Jesus. But why? Because when you know Jesus, you know the Creator, because Jesus is the Creator. He's the Word made flesh. He's the one for whom and through whom all things were created. You can know this God. That's the biggest wonder of it all. Can you imagine that? That you can have personal relationship with the Creator of the universe through Jesus. You can know that He loves you. You can know that He's for you. You can talk to him. He'll talk to you through his word. Have you done that? Have you turned your life over to Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him? Do you know the creator of the universe? Because if you do, friends, I want to tell you, if you do, if you know the creator, there is really nothing else that you need. 
You have everything if you know the Creator, and that is true for all of us who have put our faith and hope in the Word made flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, the richness, the profundity, the power of your word, the things that it tells us that just blows our minds and encourages our hearts. Thank you. Lord, please bless this series as we look through the book of Genesis. Give us insight and turn us into greater lovers of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we respond to the word of God and worship. <clears throat> 